Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Of Jesus. Well, hey, take your copy of God's Word, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 35. Mark chapter 12 in verse 35. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into God's Word. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time of worship. You are a good, 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 good Father. And Father, that is who you are. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would, would work as God, I'm, I'm very convicted about this message. This message, Lord, as you know, has beat me up all week. And so, Father, would just in this moment, this holy moment, would you just eliminate any distractions in our brains? And Lord, help us just to focus on you and your word and how we can take it in our lives and completely abandon everything and follow you. And we ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be, verse 35. Let's all stand. Mark 12, verse 35. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How so how is he his son? And the crowd heard him gladly. And in his teaching, Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts to devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You may be seated. How many of you like getting a bargain? Anybody? Like, I like getting bargains. Man, I mean, we don't, we don't eat anywhere unless you use coupon, right? <laughs> Got to have a coupon, like getting deals. I mean, how many of you, though, you, you found something online, maybe, maybe you know, you know, you're scrolling on Instagram, you're scrolling, and then up pops this thing that you think is going to change your life forever. You scroll, through, oh man, and it tells you these ads and says, if you buy this, your hair will grow. <laughs> if you buy this, all your, all your weight issues are going to be, I mean, so have you ever bought something and you thought it was going to be awesome and then you realize maybe it wasn't as great of a deal as you thought? 
Well, over the years, I have prided myself in getting great deals online for travel. And one of the deals a few years ago I got, which has kind of changed my view on good deals when it comes to travel, is that I got a hotel on Priceline.com. I bid and got a hotel in Atlanta for $23. One to bid. High bidder. And so it happened to be a day's end in Southeast Atlanta. And so I went to the website and, and, and I looked, man, it, it looked great. I mean, it, it, the, the pictures were wonderful. It had a pool, had a 24-hour fitness center, free breakfast, close to the interstate. And so we were going to drive from Orlando area all the way up to Kentucky to visit family. And this was going to be our stop in between. And, and we've been driving all day and it was 10 o'clock at night. And, and, and there we were and we get to the hotel and, and, and it looked really nice on the outside. And so I looked at April and I said, honey, aren't you glad you married me? <laughs> you know, look, I, who, what kind of husband can get a nice hotel and only spend $23? And so we get our three little kids, because they were little at the time, we get them out of the van, and, and they're exhausted, and, and we go, and we, uh, I get the key, and, and we walk into our room, and, and I walked into the room, and we got what I paid for. <laughs> um, it was just nasty. There was hair on the phone. Uh, the floor was dirty. The TV was dusty. There were dead roaches in the bathroom. The bathroom smelled like somebody died. And so I go back to the reception desk. Nobody was there, and it smelled like pot, okay? <laughs> it, it, was, it was something. So what I thought was an impressive deal turned into an ordeal, and my wife looked at me, and she said, I want a new deal, okay? <laughs> and so I drove through the night to Kentucky. Here's a tip, men. If you ever get a hotel for under $25 a night, it's probably not as good as you think. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because sometimes in life, we think one thing about something, and it ends up being something else completely different. You know, sometimes we overestimate things. We overestimate the big and the flashy and the exciting and then we tend to underestimate other things. We tend to underestimate the small and the ordinary and the mundane. And so as we look in the life of Jesus, we're, we're going to see that sometimes what we think is big is small, and sometimes what we think is small is big in the eyes of God. So we are here. It's still Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus is still at the Temple Mount. He is at the Southern Steps. If you ever go with me to Israel, I'll take you to the Southern Steps. And Jesus, uh, at the Southern Steps, is on the hot seat. Uh, he is being interrogated by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribe. And every question that has been thrown at Jesus has been met with mind-blowing brilliance, so much so that Mark tells us that no one else dared ask him any more questions. And so in this section, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to take us below the surface to see what we don't see. We're going to see who he is. We're going to see who the scribes are. And we're going to see the poor widow in this text. And what Jesus is going to show us is he's going to show us his deity, the scribes' insecurity, and the poor widow's 
generosity. So let's just unpack that. Number one, we're gonna see deity. Jesus is more than who you think he is. And so Jesus is now on the offensive, verse 35. He starts asking questions. And so there's a crowd of people. He's again at the Southern Steps. Hundreds of people are there listening to Jesus. And he now says this question, which people could have heard him say. How do the scribes, the scribes were the teachers of Torah. They were the preachers. They were the experts. How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah, Christ, is the son of David? Now, the the scribes, the teachers of the law, said that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and would rule Israel and restore the kingdom of God and the kingdom of David. And so Jesus is then going to take them to an Old Testament passage written by David, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was such a well-known passage of Scripture. It'd be like us saying the Pledge of Allegiance. It's just kind of known from memory. It was a coronation song. It was a song sung at every coronation of a new king of Judah. And then after Judah fell during the exile period, this psalm, Psalm 110, was a song of hope. Uh, And it was also a prayer of expectation for the coming Messiah. The Psalm 110 is actually one of the most quoted Old Testament references used in the New Testament to describe who Jesus is. He is the priest. He is the king. And so Jesus asks this question, and then he says, he quotes Psalm 110, and he says that David declared this in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just take a side thought here. Theologians call this verbal plenary inspiration. In other words... This is the doctrine in which David, when he wrote Psalm 110, wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that David and the Holy Spirit work concurrently, that David used his own language and and his own uh, creativity to say what was on his heart, but it was written in a way that the Holy Spirit ensured that it was exactly what God wanted him to say. They didn't fight against each other. They worked with each other. And so David wrote Psalm 110 the way God wanted him to write it. And so this is under inspiration. Jesus is very clear about that. And here's what he says. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, if you were to look at Psalm 110 in the Old Testament, the first word Lord would be capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh or Jehovah. And the second Lord would be capital L but lowercase o-r-d, that's Adonai. You say, what does that have to do? Stay with me. What David is saying under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that God is speaking to David's Lord. So David's superior. God is speaking to David's superior. Here's what God is saying to someone who is David's superior. Sit here until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, God is saying to David's superior, who is the Messiah, that he was going to have complete victory over all of his enemies. And so who are the Messiah's enemies? Sin, death, hell, Satan, and the grave. God says to Jesus, to Messiah, you're going to have victory over all of them. And so the question then that Jesus asks is this, how can David's superior also be David's son? You say, well, okay, well, then what does that mean? Well, in this time and in the Old Testament days, you never called your child your superior. Now, we live in a kindergarten in which we have children-centric homes in which they rule the roost, (laughs) in which parents do bow down and call their children's yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, okay? But in this day, in honor culture, a father would never call his son his superior. The only way a father would ever call his son a superior is if his son were God. Now, again, we have some parents who act like their children are God or gods or goddesses. 
So David here, Jesus is saying, how is it that David is gonna call his son his superior? The only way that could happen is, is that this son of David must be his superior, must be not only the son of David, but also the embodiment of God. And so Jesus is saying to them, the son of David is the son of God. And so he takes these experts of Torah to task and through the scriptures prove that he was God. Some, some people say, well, you know, Jesus never said in the Bible that he was God. Well, that's not true because Jesus all the time, over and over and over again, said that he is God, either explicitly or implicitly, because he would do things that only God could do, say things that only God could say. And here he is explicitly saying, I am God. I am King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so what does that mean to all of us in this room and you watching online? It means this, is that Jesus is more than who you think he is. He's God. And so many of us, we kind of put Jesus in, in certain different categories so that we can understand who he is or we have a Jesus of our own imagination. But, but I want you to get at, understand that Jesus does not conform to who you think he is. Jesus blows all of your categories out of the water. That he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Augustine said, Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all. And so we are to love, serve, and obey him as our Lord. So I'm gonna give you three practical things you need to know that will change your life. You want them right now? Write them down. Three things. Here they are. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Number two, Jesus is Lord. Number three, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all. He's more than what you think he is. So that's deity. Second thing we see in our text is insecurity. The scribes are less than what you think they are. So Jesus, again, is now on the offense. He just had a scribe ask him a question, and then Jesus now asks the scribes a question, and then now Jesus is gonna talk about the scribes. He says to everyone listening, he says, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the teachers of Torah. Beware of the pastors. Beware of the preachers. He says, you think they're awesome, but they're not as awesome as you think they are. Now, again, the last conversation Jesus had with the scribes seemed pretty good. Jesus says, you're very close to the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus is talking about the whole class of scribes, these teachers of Torah, these lawyers, these experts. And Jesus, as he's saying this, there are probably dozens or if not hundreds of scribes listening to him. And Jesus, in this moment, is exposing them as frauds. He says they love to walk around in, in long robes. In that day, in Jesus' day, the scribes would wear white flowing robes. That was the high fashion of that day. It's the fashion of the wealthy. It's the fashion of the pious. Now, purple robes were royalty. White robes were piety. So they loved to walk around in, in, in white robes, and they loved to be greeted in the marketplaces. They loved to, to, to go places and, and be recognized and, and to be honored, that people would call them teachers or rabbis or or, or doctor, or, or father. They, they love the best seats in church. And so in that day, where you, sit, where you sit is where you stand. And so they would sit in the Torah box, which would be close to the front. 
or they would sit in Moses's seat, which would be on the platform facing everyone. They, they, they wanted the, the front seats. They, they wanted the seats of honor. They, they wanted the, 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 the ones that, that everyone's, oh, you see you sitting there? Now, in our day, the best seats aren't in the front, they're in the back, right? Y'all in the back? Like some people get here early to sit in the back. That way y'all can leave early. When they were invited to dinner parties, they, they sat by the host. They, they wanted the, 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 those seats, those seats that everyone saw who they were. And then Jesus says they devour widows' houses. They, they exploit the poor and the vulnerable. They, they, they're not only spiritual peacocks, but they're spiritual predators. They abuse the hospitality and generosity of the people. See, as, as being scribes, they, they weren't allowed to be paid for being a scribe, but they were to live off the subsidies and the hospitality of other people. So they were freeloaders, but they were freeloading off of people who had no means. And this was all an entitlement culture. Now, we live in a day of entitlement. Entitlement often follows pride. Just, just in this moment, these, these scribes, they, they thought they earned it. I mean, look, I, I've studied all my life Torah. I, 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 they think they deserve it. You know, I, I speak a lot. I talk a lot. I do these things. I help people. So they thought they deserved what they got. And, and they thought that the blessings from others were, were something that they should expect every day. And, and what they did is they turned blessings from God into demands and expectations they lost their sense of gratitude and they, they turned all of that into what they can gain from other people. They didn't care who they stepped on. A few years ago, I was in India. And, you know, sometimes uh, churches and religious organizations, even pastors, we get bad reputations. I mean, I was in India a few years ago and I was watching on, on TV. Uh, it was a Christian channel in English uh, and it was speaking to the people of India and it was, it was explaining that if you are poor... If you just sow a seed of faith, $1,000, that God would then shower down on you triple blessings. And so it's like God's a slot machine. You put 1,000 in, you get 3,000 out. And so the guy was going, talking about story after story. I remember one time he said, there, I got an anonymous check in the mail. Now, how do you get an anonymous check? Money was just pouring in, and on the bottom of the screen were these names of people. I couldn't read or what their names were, but, but they were just all these amounts. These are poor people. And it was like they were saying, send your money to the Lord. Here's my personal address. <laughs> he says that for pretense, they make long prayers. So they would look the part. They would, they would have the title. They would sit at the chief seats. And then they, they were asked to pray. Now, you all remember going to old church and some old guy would pray and he'd pray like 30 minutes. And you'd be like, Lord, when's this going to be over with? Like you were praying that he would be done praying. I remember this one guy, he would pray. And this was in Kentucky. He'd just say, dear Lord. And when I was a little kid. My dad, I used to, when my dad, because he was a pastor, he called him and prayed, oh, Lord. And so I used to just count the number of dear lords. One time the guy got over 100, okay? Dear lord, anyway. So <laughs> I don't know why I told you that. So, so these guys, th listen, they were pious. And so they would pray. They would pray with hands up. They would pray to be seen, to be heard by others. What looked like devotion was simply self-promotion. So they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be known. They wanted to be appreciated. But it was all a sham. It was a show. They were religious fakes. 
who are trying to mask their own personal insecurities with hypocrisy. Now, churches have a bad rap for hypocrites, and there are hypocrites in the church. But sometimes we have in our minds, I've had some people, oh, you know, I, I, man, I don't know if I need to get baptized. I don't, I don't know if I need to do this. I, don't know. I feel like a hypocrite if I do that. And sometimes we think a hypocrite is not what it is because a hypocrite is not someone who does the right thing even though they, even though they don't feel like doing it. I mean, some of y'all didn't feel like coming to church today. And don't raise your hands. I want to know who, because I might get depressed. <laughs> well, like some of you, but, but you came anyway. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. That makes you honest. A hypocrite is this. A hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask to get people to think something about them that they know they're not. And it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were exposed. They were naked and afraid and ashamed. And what did they do? They cover themselves with fig leaves. Well, God saw right through the fig leaves. God, God saw the, the exposure of their heart, but they were trying to cover it up. And that's what we try to do with religion or with money or with career or with education or with acclimates or with fame is we try to cover up our inner insecurity. This is the tendency of all of our hearts. We want people to recognize us and the hard work that we have done. Uh, we want people to think that we're successful, that we are special, that we are even spiritual. We want people to show us deference. Uh, you know, we live in a culture that's obsessed with fashion and expensive clothing. Like we have a, a world that's obsessed with fame and celebrity and pride and superiority and greed and making money regardless of the collateral damage. And we live in it with a sense of entitlement. And I, I'm reading this text, and, and, and like I said a minute ago, these scribes were basically the same thing as pastors or preachers. And I'm sitting here thinking, Lord, is, are these tendencies in my heart? And the answer is, as I'm reading this, this sounds like me. And it probably sounds like you. Because all of us struggle with pride. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, speaks about pride. Here's what he says. He says, if you think you're not conceited, it means that you're very conceited indeed. Like the guy says, I'm, I'm humble and proud of it. <laughs> if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Pride is competitive by its very nature. Now listen to this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next one, the next man. See, he says, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else was if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. That's the scribes. They wanted the, the long robes. They wanted the greetings in the marketplace. They wanted the seats of honor so that they could look good to themselves compared to other people. See, we naturally do this. We naturally compete with each other and measure ourselves against each other. And this is pride. And listen, it can cut both ways. If, if I'm doing better than the person sitting next to me, I feel pretty good about myself. If I'm doing worse than the person sitting next to me, I feel bad about myself. But the issue is not that you want more of God. It's really that you just want more of you. 
And so Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. You understand that God is nobody's fool? God sees through religiosity. He sees through self-righteous hypocrisy. God sees how people use his name to exploit people and prey on the vulnerable. You know when real revival happens in the church? It's when people who are church members actually get saved. God sees you. You, you, He sees me. And for someone like me or someone like you who has heard the Bible, maybe you come Sunday after Sunday and you've got stacks and stacks of Bibles in your home and you've got access to podcasts and, and other Christian books and other Christian thinking, do you understand that the greater the revelation, the greater the accountability for the revelation you've received? And therefore, the greater the condemnation if you reject the revelation that you've been given? These guys knew the Torah. They mishandled the Torah for their own personal gains. And here's what I want to say. Everyone would have thought that the scribes were the spiritual elites. Now, were some of them? Yes. But by and large, they really weren't. People would have said, those are the ones, they are sold out for God. They are sold out. They have given their life to God. They are all in. But sadly, these scribes wanted to look the part without being the part. And they're not as, they're not as awesome as you think. So Jesus is going to show us what it really looks like to follow him. And now we're going to get to the last one, Generosity. And we're going to look at this poor widow who is more impressive than you think. Now, verse 41. So Jesus has said what he said, asked the question, now talks about the scribes, and then he sits down. And the Bible says he sat down opposite the treasury. So in the, in the Temple Mount, there was, we talked about this last week, there was a huge court of the Gentiles. Then inside was the court of women. Both Jewish men and Jewish women could be there. And in the court of women, it's pretty large, there were 13 shaped, 13 trumpet shaped chests, okay? Offering boxes. And people would come in and they would give their money to God. And each chest uh, was a different type of offering. But all the offerings were used either to run the temple, provide for the priest, keep up the building, and help the poor. And so it was Passover, people were to come bring their offerings, okay? And so Jesus sat down and he watched people. Jesus watches people. So like some of y'all like to go to the mall and watch people. Some of y'all like to go like to other places, you know, Mercado or, or go so and you just people watch. Sometimes you go to the beach, just people watch. People are strange, right? <laughs> they really are strange. I mean, we won't go further than that. And so Jesus here is looking, and people are giving money. They're putting money in. And so he was watching everything. Now, here's the thing. You understand this, that God sees everything in your life, and he also sees how you spend your money. So, like, he knows what you bought this week. Like, he knows your credit card statement even before you do. Like, he, he, know, he knows every, everything that goes in and out of your, your life. He knows how you got your money. He knows how you made your money. And when you, when you listen and hear the words of Jesus on money, here's what he says. Basically, the gist is this. How you spend your money says, the, says a lot about the state of your heart. And so Jesus here is watching, just people watching. 
these rich people, I mean, he's just sitting right here, and he sees these rich people there. They're bringing in their, their bags of money. Now, that day, there were no paper money. There was no checks, no debit card. You couldn't scan your phone. You had change. So they would bring huge bags of change and dump it in there. Have you ever been to like vacation Bible school where the little kids, like you're having the boys against the girls and the boys always win, right boys? And, uh, and, and, and they just, they got these big jars that they've been saving or somebody and they just pour it in there and there's just so many. And they're like, look at me, dudes. Like y'all remember when you were like 10 years old? You strut like a peacock. I brought in $20 in pennies. So they were, and they gave the impression that they were generous. And so Jesus is sitting there. He's just sitting right here. And, and there was this little widow woman. And she, she just walks up. She takes these two little copper coins. One sixty-fourth of a Roman denarii. Denarii was a day's wage. So one sixty-fourth of it. Two little pennies. Puts them in to the chest wasn't much. Jesus gets his disciples, hey, hey, Peter, James, John, Judas, come here. Let me show you something. Hey, wait, wait, wait. You, you, you see that woman? What woman? You see her over there? Now listen, widows were the poor, the helpless. They were the most vulnerable people in society. She probably didn't have any children because if she did, it'd be a better offering. The family would have went with her. So she's probably, widow has no children on her own. Jesus look, hey, hey, look, look, look. See that woman? She gave more than everybody else here. And they're looking at, John is looking at James, and James looking at Peter, and Peter's looking at Bartholomew, and Bartholomew was looking at Andrew, and Andrew was looking at Jesus, and they just said, what? What woman? Are you sure? I mean, we couldn't even buy a slice of air with what she gave us, what she gave what are you talking about? And Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, they gave, all these people here, they gave out of their abundance. They gave out of their surplus. She gave out of her poverty. Do you understand that Jesus knows both the gift and the heart behind the gift? He knows the gift and the giver. And he doesn't, he doesn't condemn the amount of money these people gave, but he knows the heart behind their giving. But this woman gave proportionately more than anyone else. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke these rich people for giving what they gave. He doesn't reject uh, what they gave, even if they gave it for the wrong reasons. He, he, he accepts it, but he doesn't use those people as examples of generosity. He uses this woman. He tells us why. Because she put in everything she had. She put in all she had to live on. The word live on there in the Greek is the word bios. We get our word biology from. She put her life in there. No one gave what this woman gave. She gave her last two pennies. That's radical generosity. That's radical trust in God's provision. Now, I know some of y'all have been waiting for a long time for me to talk about giving. Well, here's your moment, all right? But I don't want to talk about giving as much as I really want to talk about generosity. Because you can give without being generous. 
See, generosity in the eyes of Jesus is not measured by the amount of the gift. The, the, the measure of generosity is the cost to the giver. See, it's not how much money this woman gave, it's how much she kept for herself. I mean, they may have brought in huge sums of money, but it may be very little compared to all that they had. And so some of you, you're like, well, pastor, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I'm, I'm struggling to make ends meet. It's expensive to live in Collier County. It's, it's, it's hard to be here and inflation and, and my kids and, and, you know, like I'm struggling to feed my children and, and, and I get it. But let me just share with you what Jesus is teaching us here. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You just have to be generous to be generous. But God wants something more than he wants your money. You know what God wants more than he wants your money? He wants you. And when he's got you, guess what? Everything follows. St. Corinthians chapter eight, Paul here is writing to the church of Corinth about another group of people who are very poor. And he says this, he says, for they, these poor people gave according to their means. As I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I never had one time in my ministry people beg to take up an offering. But these people did. And they said this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So in other words, listen, if God has your heart, then he has everything else. Do you understand that you can, you can give money without loving God, but if you love God, you're gonna give him everything. You know, I had one preacher say this. He says, the only people who don't like sermons about giving are people who don't give. So then he says, if you hear anyone saying they don't like this sermon, then you know they don't give. It got really quiet in the room. Like even the normal people who talk to each other in the sermon weren't even talking then. You know, there are two types of people when it comes to money typically. They're spenders and savers. Spenders are people who see money as a key to happiness, so they spend it to maximize enjoyment in the moment. Savers are people who see money as the greatest, they see money's greatest value is providing security for tomorrow. Often, in the economy of God, he puts spenders and savers in the bonds of matrimony. <laughs> right? Y'all woke up on that one. But Jesus is not calling us to be spenders or savers. He's calling us to be stewards. Stewards understand they're not owners, they're managers. Everything they have is ultimately God. Stewards look to God for the primary source of happiness, fulfillment, and security, and they don't hold their money tightly, but stewards hold to their money loosely because they don't see it as the means of joy, happiness, and security. They see that as God. How you handle your money and how you use your money is, 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 is old, it's ancient. I mean, you can go back to Genesis and you hear this thing called tithing. Tithing is, an, maybe you've never heard that word before, tithing is an ancient art form of giving 10% of your income to someone else. And so in Genesis, Abraham gave 10% of his income to Melchizedek. 
who's the king of Salem, who was a foreshadow picture of Christ. Later on in the Bible, the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to give 10% through the temple. Matter of fact, if you read the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel were to give three tithes, 10% to the temple, 10% for the the period of the feasting uh, to pay for the food for everybody, and then 10% for the poor. In the New Testament, as we look, giving 10% is a baseline for how you should give your money through the local church to support the vision and ministry of it. Now, some of you are like, man, I knew it. Every time I come to church, they talk about money and giving. Listen, stay with me on this. Generosity is not about just your money. But I'll tell you this, the more money you make, the harder it is to give. It just is. When you are poor, it's a little easier. When you're richer, it's harder. But generosity is not what God wants from you. God doesn't need your money. We don't need your money. Generosity is not what God wants from you. It's what God wants for you because as you are generous, as you are giving, you are trusting God more. And and here's what I believe with all my heart, that if you're faithful with the little, he'll make you faithful over more. Now, that's not that God's some uh, slot machine, but it just means that God won't trust you with greater riches. That if you entrust him with the riches you have, he will entrust you with greater riches, which may not necessarily be money. Luther, Martin Luther said this, he says, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. When I, when I was growing up in, in elementary school, you ever drink those little milk cartons? And, and I remember as a kid, the company that, that had the milk cartons that I went to the school was Borden. You ever heard of Borden Milk? So There's a, there a guy a long time ago named William Borden. William Borden was the heir to the Borden Milk Company. And uh, at the age of 25, he walked away from all that money, walked away from his inheritance, walked away from the comforts of being rich, and surrendered his life to be a missionary to Egypt. And he did that at the age of 25. While he was at Yale, he wrote this in his journal. He said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Borden was in Egypt. He was learning the language. He was there only a few months and he contracted meningitis. And he died. Just a few hours before he died, someone asked him, hey, is this whole coming to Egypt thing, was that a mistake? Do you, do you have issues? Do you think, man, I shouldn't have done that? And he was so weak, he couldn't talk. And so he grabbed, he grabbed his Bible and he, and he asked for a, 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 piece, a, a pen and he wrote on the back of his Bible, no regret. And they buried him in a very plain looking place in Cairo, Egypt, very plain looking tombstone. I've seen the tombstone. It's got his name, the dates of his short life. And on it is this phrase, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. See, the only explanation for a life of generosity is a life changed by Jesus. Our desire for generosity springs from receiving the ultimate generosity from Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. In this passage, Jesus' definition of generous is something that all of us can attain. Because by definition, Jesus says that everyone can be generous if they're willing to abandon themselves and follow him. See, the chief sacrifice that God requires is not our money, it's our lives. It's living in self-denial. That's what this woman did. She put her life in the offering plate. Literally, she put her life. She had nothing else, that was it. I give you, I give you everything. Now, I don't know, that's hard. See anybody in this room think that's easy? It's not easy. Because I like stuff. Anybody else like stuff? I like nice stuff. Anybody else like nice stuff? Okay, I, 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 I like doing things when I want to do them. I, I like convenience and, and I, I don't want to be inconvenienced and, and, and I, I feel like I'm, just, I owe, I'm owed things and, and I want to spend all of my money. I don't want to just spend 90% of it. I want to spend 100% or some of you spend like 120%. I mean, <laughs> I like that. It's hard. But it's their only way to live. That's what this woman did. And the ones that everyone thought were impressive weren't impressive at all. And the one that nobody ever saw was seen by Jesus. You know why? Because she made her life an offering. Charles Stanley passed away this week. Great preacher. Great man of God. He had this famous saying that said this. He said, obey God and leave the consequences to him. That's what this woman did. She gave. Jesus says she gave all that she had. She literally laid down her life in obedience. Her life was a living sacrifice. And Jesus commends her sacrifice to his disciples and to us today. He talks, he brags about this woman's sacrifice. He's like bragging, knowing that in just a few days, he was gonna make the ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> he brags about this woman's sacrifice of two pennies when he is about to give his life on the cross. And what that tells us is this, is that no one will ever give us what Jesus has given us. And nothing we will ever give will be more than what Jesus has given to us. And when we give our lives to him, he takes what is little and what is weak and changes the world. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you will win it if you go in Jesus' name. So here's the invitation. 
The invitation is not, I gotta give more money. Now you, maybe some of you should give more money. Maybe you should really pray about it. Am I tithing? Am I giving at least 10% through the ministry of this church? And what does that look like for my life? Maybe some of you, 10% is like astronomical. Maybe just 1% or, or something. But this sermon, I don't want you to leave here because I don't want you to leave here and talk to your friends. And I, Man, I went to church, went to First, First Naples. All they talk about is money. No. I don't want you leaving here thinking I want more money and the church wants more of your money. And I don't want you leaving here thinking that God wants more of your time or that I want more of your time and the church wants more of your time because that's not what the sermon is. Here's what the sermon is. God doesn't want more of your money. God doesn't want more of your time. God wants all of you. That's what he wants, all of you. Not more of you, all of you. And I want to give you an, an opportunity right now to give your all to him. And it's every day. Every day you got to crucify the self. Every day. Self-denial every day. More of you, less of me. Take it all. You can have it all. Because whatever we give him pales in comparison to what he gave for us. For some of you, you need to get saved. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to surrender your life to him. For others in this room, you need to surrender your life to ministry. You know God's calling you to ministry. You know God's calling you to live for him, full-time vocational ministry. Maybe it's to be a missionary like William Borden. Whatever it is, don't say no to him. Don't say no. Let your life be a life of gratitude. So I'm gonna open this altar. If you wanna come down and kneel, if you wanna kneel in your seats, if you wanna stand in praise, we're gonna stand in a moment. We're gonna sing about God's grace. And we're gonna sing about gratitude. But whatever it is, just say, God, here am I. Use me. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do. That God, that you would set this church on fire for you, that we would all be living sacrifices. That we would be like that widow woman and not just put in surplus, but put it all in. And God, may we live a life of gratitude for your grace. May we never get over what you have done for us. May we lift up our hands and our voices and live our lives in gratitude for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing, let's come, let's kneel, let's pray. Let's give it all to Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church, go out and be the church, have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.